0: Okay, so we finished up last week with uh, total depravity or radical inability. And this week we move on to the next part in the doctrines of grace, which is unconditional election. The, uh, the U in tulip, unconditional election, or also can be uh, called uh, God's sovereign choice. Now, one thing that you may already be aware of, if not, I hope that you will be noticing it as we move through this, through the doctrines of grace, is how they are all dependent upon one another, and how there is an order to what we're doing. We started off, if you recall, speaking of the sovereignty of God. We examined that fairly closely to determine that God is sovereign overall. That's what His Word reveals to us. And from there, once we had that in hand, we were able to move on to radical inability, where we learned that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, and apart from God's power, God's work, we are unable to save ourselves. This, of course, points back to God's sovereignty, and once we understand that, then it flows naturally that we have this radical inability, or what is traditionally called total depravity. Once we have that in hand, we move on to our topic now, unconditional election. As we work through unconditional election, my hope is that you will see that this is, without a doubt, has to be based on God's sovereignty and our radical inability. Then there has to be unconditional election, and we're going to we're going to examine that. If you're not exactly sure what that means, uh, what the terms you know, talk about, we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit, and it'll be uh, clearer. And many of you undoubtedly are, and hopefully then this will be a good refresher for you. But the first thing I want to do is look to see what God's Word says about this. So turn to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 3 and 5. Ephesians 1 3 through 5 Ephesians 1 3 through 5 Paul writes Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, in all truth, I could read God's word, that passage to you, close my Bible and sit down, and thus saith the Lord, this is unconditional election right here. Um, And it, it, it could be sufficient. Um, there, are, but there are so many passages in the Bible from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation that speak of this unconditional election. You know, it's difficult to, we're not going to be able to cover every single passage. Um, but we will look at some of the main ones, starting with Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, and we'll build a case for unconditional election that is bulletproof. Now, as as you know, um, we do not depend on a weight of Scripture to prove God's teaching. If the Bible says that something is so, if God says something is so, he need only say it once. However, we find in the Bible when God repeats things, then he's drawing our attention to something that's very important, something that we need to see, that we need to understand. And in this case, I think it is because, and this is just my, my, my thoughts on this, it is because this is a difficult doctrine for us in our fallen sinful condition. The fact that the election to salvation is unconditional. So going back just quickly to Ephesians 1, 3 through 3-5, I want to point out some things in here. In verse 3, Um, we find that it is uh, where our blessings come from above. They come from uh, God the Father, and every spiritual blessing comes from him. We are blessed by him. These blessings come from the heavenly places. They come from above to us below here in the material world, here on earth. So we see where... The power is behind this whole idea of election. Um, in verse 4, even as he chose us, he chose us, not that we chose him, not that we were really smart and then we, we knew, you know, which side of the bread the butter should go on. He chose us when, before the foundation of the world, why, that we should be holy and blameless. Now, we should be holy and blameless. The implied in that is that that's God's work to make us holy and blameless. We It doesn't say we need to be holy and blameless before him, before we're chosen. It's saying that God is the one who does this work in us. Before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, right? Before us, before our parents, even before our first parents, Adam and Eve, In his love, in his great love, God predestined us. And we're going to talk about what that term predestined means in just a moment. He predestined us for what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now we've spoken about this term about being adopted as sons. You guys should remember that it includes male and female, men and women. But in the context of the first century, the inheritance was two sons. So all of us are included in this because that's the way the inheritance flowed. But it means the brothers and the sisters in Christ. So think about this. A child, when a child's adopted, does the child choose his or her parents? No. The adoptive parent, in this case the adoptive father, chooses the child or the children, that he desires through his own will, his decision, his choice, to adopt. And really, there's nothing that the child can do to prepare himself or herself for this adoption. And it's according to the purpose of his will. That's the sovereignty of God right there. The adoption, the idea of the adoption, really, I think, is speaking to the radical inability of ourselves to bring our own selves to salvation, that that it's God's work. Okay, so now let's talk about the doctrine. What is the statement of the doctrine of unconditional election? What do we mean by this? So election is a theological term that means God's choice of a people that he has set apart For himself. Now, again, theologically, when something is set apart by God or for God, it's holy. It becomes holy. That's the set apartness. And if God had not graciously chosen a people for himself and sovereignly determined, that is, on his own, to provide salvation for them and then apply that salvation, not only choosing, but applying salvation to them, none None, no one, would be saved. It would be impossible for us to gain our own salvation. And it's unconditional. Why? Because there are no conditions placed upon God that limit or compel his choice. Now, through this whole series in the doctrines of grace, we're going to be speaking, and we have spoke, of free will. What does free will mean? I believe it was last week. We talked about the person, the only person, who is totally, radically free is God himself. God is absolutely free. We are not. Even though we can make choices, we do not have the level of freedom that God has. We are contingent beings. Everything we do is based upon something else. God does not have any of those restrictions like we do. So... Election, this theological term, involves salvation. It's, and it's just one aspect, albeit an important one, of salvation. Election marks out certain individuals for salvation and is therefore determined ultimately by divine appointment or divine choice. So when we talk about this, oftentimes the term Calvinism, comes up. And if you mention Calvinism in a conversation with someone, often the response will be, oh, that has to do with predestination, doesn't it? Well, yes, Calvinism does hold firmly to the doctrine of predestination. And the Reformed view of the doctrine, and we are a confessionally Reformed church, is central. The Reformed view of this, of unconditional election, is central to historic Calvinism. But in Calvin's writing, in Calvin's thinking, there's virtually nothing new when it comes to his view of predestination. It was found before Calvin's writing, in Martin Luther's writing. Luther actually wrote more about predestination than Calvin did. And Calvin's treatment of it in his Institute of Christian Religion is actually fairly sparse compared to the other doctrines he writes about. So we have Martin Luther writing before Calvin. But before Luther, Augustine in the fifth century is writing about unconditional election. And arguably, in between the time of Augustine and Martin Luther, we have Thomas Aquinas. Who's writing about it? Some say, no, he really wasn't. And and many say, yes, he was. So going back to the, the passage that we read at the beginning, Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, we read that Paul speaks of believers being predestined according to the purpose of God's will. The question then is not, does the Bible teach predestination? Obviously it does. We just read it. And remember what I said Previously, if it's in one place, if God has it in one place in his word, then it is of God's teaching. But we're going to see it's in a lot of places. So the Bible does teach it. The question then that we need to wrestle with and and determine is exactly what does the biblical concept of predestination mean? Now here's one of the things about theology, and you've, I'm sure you've all experienced it. When you, when you talk to people, terms, theological terms can mean different things. If you talk to a Roman Catholic about justification, they're going to have a completely different idea about what justification means. So it may sound like you're talking about the same stuff, and you're not. When you talk to Jehovah's Witness about Jesus Christ, they're going to have a completely different definition of Jesus Christ Than we have. So we have to understand what the terms mean. So, this is what we're going to look at. What does it mean? So, predestination, in its most basic sense, has to do with the question of destiny. Now, I know you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again, um, because there's the reason why I say certain things over and over again, because I really want you guys to know certain things and I want you to remember them. In the great conversation in the West, between the philosophers, the theologians, the writers, the thinkers, there are three questions that they're trying to resolve. Origins, purpose, and destiny. Where did we come from? What's our purpose? Why are we here? And where are we going? Destiny. So predestination speaks to that, to the the destiny, where we're going. So destination or destiny is a point towards which we are moving, but we've not yet reached, right? It's like, you know, your children in the back seat, you know, are we there yet? You know, they're inter- they want to get to the destination. They're interested in what their destiny. What's the destiny that mommy and daddy have for me today? Is it the doctor's office or is it the amusement park? Is it fun or is it not so fun? So, you know, obviously here we've added the, the prefix pre to destination. It gives us a meaning of something that takes place prior to or before the destination. So mom or dad may say, if you, say, if you ask that one more time, I'm pulling the car over. And that's before you get to the destination, right? Okay, maybe a bad analogy because God doesn't do that. So I don't want to get us off track. <coughs> okay. So the context of the Bible sets forth the doctrine of... Well, the context of the Bible is important when we set forth the, uh, the idea of this, uh, this predestination. We have to understand and remember what the context is surrounding this. So <clears throat> this is stuff that, that, we've, uh, that we've gone over, and it's just a little reminder Think of Adam's transgression. Because of that, his descendants, us, enter the world as guilty, lost sinners. We learn that this is called original sin, that we are in a state of original sin. And as fallen creatures, they or us, we have no desire to have fellowship with our creator apart from him making that move towards us. Here we go to the radical inability or total depravity. And remember, I I, I don't know why I said that, you know, God is holy, just, and good. And we, my notes say they, but they is us, we are sinful, perverse, and corrupt. We are in a state of total depravity. As horrible as that sounds, That's something we have to grapple with. And if we're honest with ourselves, we realize it. And left to our own choices, we invariably follow, we have followed previously. If we are in Christ now, this is the condition that we were previously in. We have followed whom Paul called the God of this world. He's referencing Satan. Our Savior, Jesus Christ his opponents, those that were opposed to his gospel message, he told them face to face that they're doing the will of their father, the devil. Again, referencing Satan. So consequently, we can see that men, men and women, have cut themselves off from God. They've aligned themselves actually with Satan. Think about this. Can you give aid and comfort to the enemy unknowingly? I think kind of you can. I mean you could be deceived and not know whom the enemy is at the moment. Um, Think if you were in a war-torn country and You had someone that came to you disguised. You thought it was just a poor refugee and it turned out to be a commando belonging to the enemy's forces and needed food, shelter, so on and so forth. And you helped that person. You would unknowingly be giving aid and comfort to the enemy. In our case, though, when it comes to Satan, can we do that unwittingly? I don't think we can do it unwittingly. And the reason for this is because God has warned us. God has given us the information we need to identify the enemy, to know what side we should be on with God and what side the enemy's on, how to identify the enemy. If we, as fallen people, choose to ignore God's word, we're responsible for that. It would be just like our our poor person in the war torn country, and maybe there's, there, there's been bulletins, there's been alerts put out, be on the lookout This, these are enemy combatants disguised, and you ignore that, then you're going to be held responsible for your unwittingly helping the enemy when you should have known better. So since we've cut ourselves off from God with this idea of original sin, we've forfeited... Our rights to his love and favor. And God would have been perfectly just to leave all of us as we were born in the state of sin, to not change a thing. And then, upon judgment, we would be responsible. We would stand before him and face his perfect justice. Again, he's under no obligation. God has never been under any obligation to provide salvation to anyone. And I'm going to read you a, a quote from Lauren Bettner in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. And he says this very, very well. And I didn't want to try and um, you know, reformulate it uh, in less impactful words. I think he does a marvelous job. So I, I'm just going to read from his writing here. And Bettner says... The Reformed faith has held to the existence of an eternal divine decree which, coming before there's any difference in men or their actions deserving of reward or punishment. Okay, what he's saying there is this divine decree of God is before humans do anything good or bad, it's the decisions made prior to that. And it separates the human race into two portions and ordains one to everlasting life and the other to everlasting death. Now, admittedly, that's a tough concept to deal with. And we're going to spend time, probably going to spend a lot of time talking about that. We're really going to examine it and try and understand it. Because this is a stumbling block for a lot of people. Even though we may not stumble on it, that we may um, have assurance and we may, you know, accept it. Um, undoubtedly there are going to be people that we know or will know, will encounter, that are going to say, wait a minute, that just seems so wrong to me. So we're going to spend time on that. Going on with what Bettner is writing. So far as this decree relates to men, it designates the counsel or the will of God concerning those who had a supremely favorable chance in Adam to earn salvation. He's talking about before the fall that mankind had a supremely favorable chance to earn salvation. Earning, on, you know doing stuff on their own sort of thing is what he's talking about. But we lost that chance. He says, but who lost that chance? As a result of the fall, they are guilty and corrupted. Original sin again. Their motives are wrong, and they cannot work out their own salvation. We're in a state of total depravity. They have forfeited all claim upon God's mercy and might, justly have been left to suffer the penalty of their disobedience as all of the fallen angels were left. Now that's a marvelous thing to think about. That God has determined that mankind is going to be, can be, and will be those that he elect rescued from the fate of their rebellion. Whereas with the angels who fell, there is no redemption. Going on, Bettner says, "...but instead the elect members of this race are rescued from this state of guilt and sin and are brought into a state of blessedness and holiness. The non-elect are simply left in their previous state of ruin and are condemned for their sins. They suffer no unmerited punishment. For God is dealing with them not merely as men, but as sinners." Now, Bettner can be a little bit difficult to understand at times. He writes in a kind of an academic way, but his, his, his thoughts and his thinking are, are really so good that when you read books on the doctrines of grace, you find a lot of very well-known authors like R.C. Sproul and uh, James Montgomery Boyce all point back to Bettner as far as their ideas. And, you know, Bettner says this, Bettner says that. So, if it sounds a little interesting to you, I encourage you to, to tackle uh, uh, Bettner. Uh, he, and that book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, is very good. I recommend it. So, <clears throat> let's talk about something that un- invariably comes up when we're talking with others, <clears throat> either the unelect or maybe our brethren in the uh, Arminian churches about fairness, regarding the question of fairness when it comes to unconditional election. Think about this, how many people have you met that believe they deserve to go to hell? Probably very few. I've met a few in my previous career as a police officer and they were really, really bad guys who knew they were really, really bad guys. And they loved being really, really bad guys. It's hard to, it's hard to you know, comprehend when you're dealing with a person like that. I mean, such uh, an embracement of, of evil. So, but really, there aren't the very many people like that, right? And the, your average person, I think there's hardly any at all, at least in this day and age. <clears throat> And many people think, with little basis for it, that they deserve heaven. And other people, without any foundation, they have a hope that they will be granted entrance into heaven. And this hope is just kind of a vague, aimless sort of thing, based maybe a little bit on works, you know, doing some good stuff. And maybe a little bit on God just looking the other way and excusing their sin. But people in both these groups think election is unfair. That is, their mindset is, I think, this is what it boils down to, if I don't go to heaven, then no one else should go to heaven. It's very childish, isn't it? It's kind of like, if I can't have my way, then the game's over, you know, and everybody has to go home. But here's the thing. Think about this, this. Childish mindset, we can call it childish on one hand, on the other hand, is the mindset of Satan and contributes to his hatred of man. So Satan, we know, is doomed. His destiny is the lake of fire. This is clear to Satan and his devils, his minions. So he desires God's human image bearers to also be doomed. He hates God above all. He hates us because we're his image bearers. And then think how much he must hate those that God has elected. He hates what God loves. So, after reading that fairly long quote from Bettner, I'm now going to read to you from our Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. I don't like standing up here and just reading um, to you, but these are important things that we need to cover as a basis. So bear, so bear with me. And um, undoubtedly, most of you are familiar, you've read through it at least once, what uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith states. Specifically, we're looking at Chapter 3 of God's Decrees. And this, I'm, I'm paraphrasing um, Chapter Three as I, as I read it. I tried to make it a little bit less archaic, without tampering with the words much, because um, I don't have enough confidence in myself to. And really, in, in, in you know, Pastor Steve and I have talked about this, and Pastor Mike about, you know, can we can we take the the confession and turn it into a more readable document? And um, Pastor Steve told us of a project that occurred where that was, had been done um, and how difficult it was. So then I come to this and I'm thinking, well, I'm just doing the thing I told Pastor Steve and Pastor Mike. I don't really want to do that. <laughs> so bear with me. I'm, I'm trying to stick really close to it. And it's not going to be changed much, but just some of the um, Elizabethan sort of language has been removed. So Chapter 3, Paragraph 1 reads, God has decreed... Freely, which means unconditionally, and unchangeably, all things from before time. Paragraph 2. Although God knows everything that will happen, God's omniscience, right, or might possibly happen, he has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or that it would come to pass due to future conditions. Now this is in opposition to what many of our Arminian friends say that it's just God seeing the future. In effect, they're saying, well, we decide what the future is, and then God runs along behind us with you know, his heavenly uh, dustpan and whisk broom and cleans up the mess and fixes stuff you know, for us. Our confession says, no, absolutely not. That's not, what, that's not what happens. Paragraph 3. God has decreed for his glory that some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ by the grace of God the Father, and others are left to act in their sin to their just commendation to the praise of God's glorious justice. Their condemnation is deserved. It's just, is what our confession is saying. And God's justice is glorified in this, in this fact that certain people are are passed over. They're left in their sins. Paragraph 4. Those men and angels who've been predestinated and foreordained are selected particularly and unchangeably. So it's not just when it comes to mortals. It's not just a nation of people. It's not a race of people. It's a particular person in each instance. It's individual selection, is what the confession is saying. And their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. doesn't matter what we do. If we're elect, we're elect. If we're not elect, if a person's not elect, they're not going to make themselves elect. Paragraph 5. Those predestinated to eternal life have been chosen by God wholly out of his free grace and love without any other thing in the person being a condition or a cause for God to do so. This will be revealed to the non-elect on the day of judgment. They will understand God's justice. They will understand his election. There will be no argument that any person could make I should have been chosen because of this is what I did. Paragraph 6, as God has appointed his elect to eternal life, all of the means by which he has granted them salvation also has been foreordained. See how the confession very carefully removes any wiggle room here for us boasting of our own works. All whom he has elected are fallen in Adam, original sin. They are redeemed by Christ, and are effectually called unto faith in Christ. Effectual calling. We're going to deal with that. That's one of the doctrines of grace we're going to get to later. Very important. By the Holy Spirit working, and are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. It is the elect and only the elect whom are granted salvation. No one else is redeemed by Christ, or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, or saved. Paragraph 7. This is the end of chapter 3. The doctrine and high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. Think of Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to God. But those things revealed to us belong to us forever. Why? So we may be obedient to God's law. So we handle this with special prudence and care. We are to realize that as the will of God is revealed in Scripture, into which we should be obedient, the certainty of this assures us of our position in God's eternal election. We're assured, that blessed assuredness. Our understanding of this rightfully leads. To praise, reverence, reverence and admiration of God and of humility, attentiveness and abundant comfort to all that sincerely obey the gospel. <clears throat> now you can see here um, why our forebears in the Reformed Baptist faith, in paragraph seven, why they're taking pains to point out that we need to handle this doctrine with special prudence and care. And, and notice how they're, they're really in reinforcing the fact that we have no pr- pride in this. Contrary to what Reformed believers are often accused of by Arminian believers, we are not prideful over this fact. There's a, there's a great deep sense of humility that we have in this because we have been chosen. There's no pride in that, you know, hey, I was smart enough when I heard the gospel message to know which choice I should make, and I choose God. I think that's where the pride is, right? Not in the fact that God's chosen us, and we didn't do anything. We did nothing to deserve it. So, it's important that we have a clear understanding of this doctrine of divine election, because our views of election determine our views of God. And man, the world, and redemption. If we think that we earn our own salvation, that we make our own way to heaven, that we are the masters of our eternal fate, then we have reversed the order of the proper view of man and God. Man then is on the throne, and man has attempted to displace God from the throne of salvation, which is... A serious, grave mistake that's done quite often in our world today. So Calvin, Calvin rightly says, We shall never be clearly convinced, as we ought to be, that our salvation flows from the fountain of God's mercy till we are acquainted with this eternal election, which illustrates the grace of God by this comparison, that he adopts not all promiscuously, to the hope of salvation. He's refuting universalism right here. But God gives to some what he refuses to others. Ignorance of this principle evidently detracts from ignorance of this principle evidently detracts from the divine glory and diminishes real humility. So Calvin says it right there. This this doctrine calls us to humility, not not to pride. Now we have a few moments left, and what I wanted to do is I wanted to go back and I wanted to deal with, um, in short, uh, a passage that's often used, and I think misused, um, by opponents of uh, the the doctrine of predestination and unconditional election. Um, I've... Most arguments that I've encountered where the person is Arminian, more Arminian in their viewpoint, will bring up this passage, and it's 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. you want to turn there in your Bibles with me, I want to read it. And we're going to talk about it a bit. So, specifically verses 11 through 12 in chapter 23. I'm going to start a little bit um, sooner. Let's just start in verse 6. When Abiathar, the son of Amenelech, had fled... To David to Keilah, he had come down with an epod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could. Then Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah. He gave up the expedition. So the argument is made is like, Well, look, David inquires of the Lord, is Saul and his men coming to this town? And the Lord says, yes. What happens? Been, Saul and his men don't come to the town. And further, David inquires of the Lord, will the people of this town, Keilah, will they give me up to Saul and his men? And the Lord says, yes, they will give you up. But they don't because Saul and his men never come down there. Why? Because when when David gets this word from the Lord. What does he do? He skedaddles, right? He gets out of there because he knows his enemies coming after him. He's not going to stick around. So people will make an argument where well, you see God foretold something and it didn't even come to pass. So this, this, is, this is really dangerous. You can really get off base on this because then you get into this thing called open theology. You know, which is extremely heretical. If you haven't heard of it, it basically means that God has no control over the future, that 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 God does the best he can as events unfold, that the future is open to everyone, including God. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that, number one. Number two, I think what we see here is what we what we might call secondary factors at work that God knows what's going to occur, right? God does not want David captured by Saul. It's not, it's not predestined. God has not decreed that. But God, using secondary factors, wants to move David out of this town of Keilah. David inquires of him, and even though God knows this isn't going to happen, We're working on a presupposition. It's like a hypothetical question. But David is is seriously considering this. Staying in the town, you know, and we'll just fight off Saul and his men um, as long as the people of Kelah will be loyal to me and they will support me, then I can stay here. Well, God knows that's not to be. So he tells David what the results of David's human decision, if he makes this decision, what those results would be. And God revealing this potential future, what does it cause David to do? It causes David to fall into God's decree that he leave this town. So when I hear this, and I listen to people using this as an example of David's overarching free will, and God not being in control of the future, God not being able to foreordain and decree what is to pass. It, it. I don't understand the, the reasoning behind that, um, but I think it's important that we, you know, we examine this as we've just done. Because it may come up. You know, someone may mention this to you. You may even have come across it in your reading. And you may be perfectly at peace with it. And you may have seen what I just explained, you know, in a, in a very clear manner. Maybe even more clear than, than my explanation. Which is great if you have. You know, that's a blessing. If, if this has caused a little bit of a stumbling, maybe it's helped you to understand um, how God works in these secondary, what we call secondary factors. Um, you know, and the question may be posed, well, why didn't God just say, David, I want you to leave? Well, we don't know the mind of God, do we? Other than what he tells us. But he's responding in a loving way his servant, David, who's asked him specific questions. And that's what God does for his elect people. David is within the decree of God. There is no way humanly, when we think of it, that David would not have left this town once he was told this. God knows David intimately. He knows his decision-making processes, because he's formed him, he's created him, he's created the events out of around his life that eventually raise him to the monarchy in Israel, and God knows exactly how to unfold the events around David so that God's decree takes place as He is determined from before creation. Okay, so that take, brings us to the end of today's lesson. Next time we meet, we're going to look at unconditional election and its proof from Scripture. That's going to be the next part uh, we tackle, so I hope that you join me for that discussion. Join me in prayer before we take our break. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your doctrine of unconditional election, Lord, and just help us to understand it, help us to embrace it, and Lord, most of all, Give us humble hearts as we grapple with these issues, Lord, that we realize that all of the goodness, all of the justness, all of the righteousness comes from you, Lord, and that you bestow it upon us, that we receive these blessings from heaven. Father, we ask for a blessing on the rest of this day as we continue to worship you. Lord, I ask for blessings upon Pastor Steve as he delivers the 11 o'clock message, Lord and again when he delivers the 5 p.m. evening message. May it all be done to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.